Now we have the delight and privilege of turning in God's word to read his inspired word and hear from him as we turn in 1 Corinthians chapter 1 to read verses 4 through 9 as we continue our study which we began last week of Paul's first letter to the Corinthians. And so we read here the inspired word of God as the Holy Spirit gave to the Apostle Paul and superintended his writing hereof so that every word, indeed every letter on the page as it was given to Paul is God's very word, what the Lord intended. And so we can with confidence know that we are reading the very word of the living God. 1 Corinthians chapter 1 verses 4 through 9. I thank my God always concerning you for the grace of God which was given to you by Christ Jesus, that you were enriched in everything by him in all utterance and all knowledge, even as the testimony of Christ was confirmed in you, so that you come short in no gift, eagerly waiting for the revelation of our Lord Jesus Christ, who will also confirm you to the end, that you may be blameless in the day of our Lord Jesus Christ." God is faithful, by whom you were called into the fellowship of his Son, Jesus Christ, our Lord. And thus ends the reading of God's holy word for us at this time. May he bless its reading and its proclamation and its hearing. After delivering his opening greeting to the church at Corinth, uh, Paul launches into a thanksgiving. Uh, This is something he does in most of his letters. Uh, In formal letter writing of Paul's day, it was customary to say uh, something positive about the recipient or recipients of your letter. Writing a letter to somebody, you're going to give them the initial greeting, then you're going to say something nice about them uh, after that initial salutation. Uh, Paul follows that pattern in a manner of speaking. However, where many letters would engage in just outright flattery, especially if you were talking to somebody who was powerful, uh, here at this point, Paul doesn't engage in flattery. He engages in thanksgiving to God. Whatever good things he has to say about the Corinthian Christians, it's going to be the result of God's goodness toward them. And Paul is giving that praise where it belongs. He's giving it to God. Thus Paul's thanksgiving in 1 Corinthians focuses on God's grace and its results. And so we see in this passage uh, several things, not everything the Bible has to say, but several things about the grace of God. The grace of God, number one, is given by Christ Jesus. Number two, it enriches God's people in the preaching of the gospel and in the knowledge of the gospel and the ideas that flow from it. Third, it confirms the gospel in God's people through A, gifts, and B, hope. Fourth, it grants perseverance to God's people. Fifth, it sanctifies God's people. And finally, God's grace grants the fellowship of God's Son to his people. Uh, Paul writes, I thank my God always concerning you for the grace of God. Notice Paul's continual prayer, it's always, uh, it's a continual prayer of thanksgiving. 
this is something he always does. That is, in his frequent prayers, it's not saying that uh, every minute of every day he's praying in that sense, but in his frequent prayers, he's uh, ever sure to give thanks to God for his grace to the Corinthian brethren. Grace, an unmerited gift given by God. God is all-powerful and so can accomplish what he intends. And he is good. We saw this toward the end of our study of Genesis, didn't we? God is is all-powerful. He's sovereign. He can do whatever he intends, and he is good, so he intends what is good, and he intends to keep his word. So he will keep his word, and he will cause all things that he has promised to come to pass to come to pass. And so Paul declares at the beginning of verse 9, God is faithful. Now the passive construction describing grace in verse 4 as something which was given to you, emphasizes that this is not something believers merited or earned. That would actually not be grace. Uh, But it was something that was freely given by God to his people. In particular, Paul is addressing the brethren at Corinth, of course, in this letter. Concerning which city, Jesus told Paul in Acts 18.10, I have many people in this city. Before there were more than a handful of Christians at most in Corinth, Jesus declared to Paul that the Father had given him many people in that city. And so Paul was to be encouraged and to go there and preach the gospel. There would be fruit born from his preaching. That was probably encouragement he desperately needed, because if you read the book of Acts up to that point, you'll find that right before that he was in Athens, And he proclaimed the gospel and he debated with the philosophers who uh, were in Athens. And he had very few in the number of converts while he was there. The one that's mentioned as Dionysius the Areopagite, a convert to Christ. And he probably needed that encouragement from Christ then to tell him, Well, when you go to Corinth, you're going to get a lot of converts because I've already claimed a whole bunch of people there. The recipients of this letter are those people. They're chosen by the grace of the faithful God. As Paul goes on with this passage, we learn several things about that grace of God. Number one, the grace of God is given by Christ Jesus. Often when you see the word by in the New Testament... Uh, it's translating a word in, from the Greek dia, uh, which can mean through or by means of or just simply by. And while it would be certainly accurate to say that God's grace is conveyed to his people through Jesus or by means of Jesus, uh, that's not actually the word that Paul uses here. Uh, literally, he says the grace of God is given in Christ Jesus, and some of your translations might use the the preposition in there. So it's not just that uh, grace is conveyed through Christ, which is true, but it is found in Christ. One who receives God's grace is, in fact, 
in Christ. The concept of being in Christ is an important one found throughout the New Testament. In fact, because faith is the instrument that God gives us that attaches us to Christ, uh, most often the preposition used for believing in Christ is a different one than this one here. It's ace, which means that you're believing into Christ. But here we are in Christ, and this concept of being in Christ is one that's found throughout the New Testament. It's a very important concept. The way God bestows his grace on his people, on his elect, is in Christ. Ephesians 1, 3 through 4, Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who has blessed us with every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places in Christ, just as he chose us in him before the foundation of the world. The elect were chosen by God from before the foundation of the world to be in Christ, to be identified with Christ, to have a union with him. It's only in Christ, therefore, that anyone can be saved from his or her own sins and their consequences. And that's one reason that, as we'll see, Paul makes a point to speak of the fellowship, this we'll come to here later, the communion that believers have in Jesus Christ. It's only through union with Christ that one's sins can be dealt with. Our sins were accounted to him, even as his righteousness is accounted to us. And so we have to be identified with him for that to happen, for that exchange to take place. Thus Christ Jesus, uh, God the Son, is the person who uh, in that specific way conveys, secures this free gift of God to his people. The grace of God is given in Christ Jesus. The second thing we learn about grace is the grace of God enriches God's people. Verse 5, that you were enriched, he's giving thanks about this, that you were enriched in everything by him. Again, it's actually in him. In all utterance and all knowledge. Of course, there are many ways that we can be said to have been enriched by God if we have received that grace. Paul focuses here on two particular things. Uh, Things we receive only by union with Christ Jesus, by being in Him. A is utterance. Literally, words or discourse. You've been enriched in words. Enriched in discourse. Uh, This is a term that primarily focuses on the preaching of the gospel, uh, which will be the main focus of the latter part of this same chapter. God enriches his people first by their hearing and believing the gospel. You wouldn't have any of the other riches that come from Christ if you didn't hear the gospel and believe it. And he uses then his people to share that gospel with others. So you're enriched in the uh, not only the hearing of that utterance, but in the uttering of it yourself, in the speaking of that word yourself to others. He gives the church gifted preachers and evangelists uh, to focus their work on doing that very thing. All of these are ways that God has enriched his people by his grace. And then another thing he enriches his people by his grace with is knowledge. God's grace enriches his people in knowledge, Paul says. Those go hand in hand, right? You have the utterance, you hear the teaching, 
and you grow in knowledge. Growing in the knowledge of the things of God is a sign of his grace and can only be done by his grace. All the teachings that proceed from the gospel. Oh sure, you can intellectually absorb some of these things. I've known Bible scholars uh, who have a, a certain knowledge of the content of the scriptures, but it is also as clear that it has never touched their hearts. And they do not have transformed lives, they don't have changed attitudes, uh, they don't believe what they know in their heads. And of course, as we'll see in chapter 2 of this letter, Lord willing, they can't discern those things which are only spiritually discerned, the true wisdom of God, unless their hearts be changed. But growing in true knowledge and wisdom of the things of God, all the teachings that proceed from the gospel, uh, that is a sign of God's grace. Peter cannot separate receiving and growing in grace from growing in knowledge when in uh, the first part of 2 Peter 3.18 he, he commands, grow in the grace and knowledge of our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ. Growing in grace is growing in knowledge and vice versa if it is true spiritual knowledge. God's grace enriches his people in knowledge. We should be eager to learn more about God, and to learn more of Him in, a, in terms of an intimate relationship that we have with Him by being in Christ. Paul reminded the Ephesian elders in Acts 20, verse 27, that he did not shrink from declaring to them the whole counsel of God. And we ought to be eager to hear that whole counsel of God. As we put these two concepts of utterance and knowledge together, then we get this notion of uh, knowledge of the things of God that is taught and shared with others. So we learn it, we share it with others, and that doesn't mean we all have to have the calling to be a teacher in the church, and not many do. Uh, but the, there is a, a calling for all Christians to share what they learn with one another. Indeed, we're to admonish one another, particularly, Paul says in Ephesians, by the singing of psalms and hymns and spiritual songs. Incidentally, the Greek word for knowledge here is gnosis. Gnosis. Uh, from that word, we get the term for a certain heretical sect or, or group of sects uh, known as Gnostics uh, in the early church. Uh, their teachings, which are called Gnosticism, uh, they called their teachings various things, uh, but they were they're kind of grouped by theologians into these things that we call Gnosticism. That doesn't mean that knowledge is all bad. This is the same word that's used here. Uh, these were groups who claimed, though, that true salvation was gained only by secret knowledge that could be conveyed in degrees to initiates uh, whom they found worthy to receive the secret doctrine that only they understood. They often selected their candidates from the wider visible church, but considered themselves to have a deeper knowledge than could be publicly proclaimed. It was knowledge that perhaps was dangerous for everyone to know. Their heretical ideas would crop up and do crop up from time to time in church history, even to this day. 
many are embraced by modern progressive so-called Christians today. But quite the opposite of this notion of there being sort of secret knowledge that only a few among the professing believers are allowed to hear and that some of us get to determine uh, that the rest get to hear. Now, quite the opposite of that idea of secret knowledge, Paul writes here of a knowledge that is available to all believers. It's neither given in secret nor should it be kept secret. It's something to be uttered. Right? It's something to be proclaimed. It's inseparable from utterance, from being spoken aloud. The one who loves God and his neighbor will be eager to share the knowledge of God with others, the knowledge of the gospel and its related doctrines, even as Paul says in verse 6, as the testimony of Christ was confirmed in you. So the testimony is confirmed in me, and I want to proclaim it to others. That brings us to our next point. The grace of God confirms the gospel. There are many ways that we find in Scripture that the gospel is confirmed by its effects on believers. Transformed lives show that the Holy Spirit is at work. That is the number one assurance, probably, that you can have in your life here and now, that you are in Christ, is is the doctrine of Scripture, are the doctrines of Scripture, changing you? That can only happen if the Holy Spirit is at work. Paul points out here two particular assurances that God gives his people. The grace of God confirms the gospel through gifts, for one thing. In verse 7, so that you come short in no gift. The word Paul uses here for gifts is uh, charismati. Its uh, root is charis, which is just grace in Greek. Uh, These are therefore free gifts resulting from God's grace. As we will see later, Lord willing, as we make our way through this epistle, the Corinthian Christians have experienced some controversy in their congregation over the claims of some concerning their spiritual gifts. There were some who were sort of lording it over others and saying, look at how great my spiritual gifts are, how much closer to God I must be than you, how much superior I must be to you. And they were focusing, as we'll see, on some of the more extraordinary and uh, visible gifts. So in that context, it's clear that Paul's not here talking about gifts like the material gifts that we might receive from God. Those are gifts as well. But he's focusing here on spiritual gifts. We'll see later that every Christian is given a spiritual gift or gifts, but these differ from one individual to the next. All should be used for the edifying of one another, and all are necessary. The spiritual gifts we each receive in Christ are are confirmations that the gospel has done its work in us. And then also, the grace of God confirms the gospel through hope. So you'll have some spiritual gifts or gift, but you'll also have hope. And now, in Scripture, hope is not a sense of a vague wish. Uh, we often use that in our everyday language that way. You know, I, I hope we get enough rain for the crops this year. Right, well, of course I will pray for that. But 
there, if I use it like that, I'm just saying, well, I wish that would happen. I don't have any control over it. I don't know what God's will is in this. But that's my wish, that there be plenty of rain this spring for the crops to grow this summer. But in Scripture, hope is not a vague wish like that. It's actually an eagerness for what we know God has promised to accomplish. So faith is believing God's promises, and then hope is looking forward to those promises being fulfilled, having that sense of eagerness. That's what Paul describes in the second part of verse 7, eagerly waiting for the revelation of our Lord Jesus Christ. This is a huge sign that you actually are someone who's changed in heart, that you are someone with saving faith, is are you really eager for Jesus to come back? Now that word uh, revelation there can refer to anything that God reveals, scripture or prophecy, but because Paul in the next verse speaks of the end and the day of our Lord Jesus Christ, it's clear he means the return of Christ when he says the revelation of our Lord Jesus Christ, his appearing, his, uh, his revealing to us visibly. Do you eagerly await that day? I don't know how many movies I've seen where the the end of days is coming. In fact, there wasn't there a movie some time back starring Arnold Schwarzenegger called End of Days? And what was the goal? Arnold was the hero, and his job was what? To stop the end of days from coming. We don't want that to happen. If we love Christ, we want that to come. We, we do look forward eagerly to Christ's return, His appearing here on earth, the revelation of Christ to us in that very direct way. The grace of God confirms the gospel in his people through gifts and through that hope, through that eagerness. We love Jesus, and so how could we not be eager to see him return and crowned with glory and to all rebellion against him to be ended and for us to live and reign with him forever? If you have that eagerness... That's a sign that God's grace is upon you. The fourth thing we see is the grace of God grants perseverance to God's people. The first part of verse 8, who, is talking about Christ there, who will also confirm you to the end. In John 10, 28, Jesus says of his disciples, I give them eternal life, and they shall never perish, neither shall anyone snatch them out of my hand. If you are a true disciple of Christ, you're in his hand. This is one of the reasons we we teach eternal security uh, that some rail against, that some believe that you can lose your salvation. For you to lose your salvation would not be dependent on you because your salvation wasn't dependent on you in the first place. It would be to say that Jesus was too weak to hold on to you when you were in his hand. And Jesus is not weak. No one is stronger than Jesus. He says, no one will ever snatch them out of my hand. God will keep you to the end if you truly are in Christ. If you are in Christ, you cannot be lost. Because you didn't find yourself. You can't lose yourself. Jesus found you. And he will not lose you. The grace of God grants perseverance to God's people. You will ultimately persevere. Yes, 
Sometimes those who end up persevering seem to fall away for a time. They backslide, as we call it. And sometimes people truly fall away who were never really God's people. John speaks of those who went out from us because they really weren't of us. And so it can be a little bit hard for us to discern these things sometimes, what's going on. And that's why when people seem to have fallen away, we still pray for their, their return. But the grace of God does grant perseverance to His people. A fifth thing we see here is the grace of God sanctifies His people. That goes hand in hand with that perseverance we were just talking about. The second part of verse 8 though, that you may be blameless in the day of our Lord Jesus Christ. God counts you righteous by faith in Jesus Christ. This is what we call justification, being counted righteous in Christ. He then works to make you truly righteous. And that's an aspect of sanctification. We speak of different aspects of sanctification. The first is an immediate sanctification whereby you are set apart from the world. Sanctification means being made holy. But then there's also what we call progressive sanctification. That is, over time, you will reflect Jesus more and more. You will look more like Jesus. God conforms his people to the image of his Son, Romans 8.29. For whom he foreknew, he also predestined to be conformed to the image of his Son. This is one of the greatest assurances you can have as well. Are you looking more like Jesus over time? I'm not talking about uh, having your hair or clothes looking the way that somebody's imagination in a painting looks like Jesus. I'm talking about do your actions look more like Jesus over time? Do your thoughts look more like Jesus over time? Are you holding thoughts captive for him more and more? Are your actions more and more righteous? I've found in my experience that it's uh, something rather like physical growth. It doesn't always come gradually at the same pace, but often comes in spurts. But you'll find that, that over time, if you reflect back over your life, have, have I become more like Christ? You should be able to see that you are more like Christ. And if so, you have great assurance. God's grace is at work within you, for God's grace sanctifies His people. Lastly, the sixth thing we see here, the grace of God grants the fellowship of God's Son. Verse 9, God is faithful by whom you were called into the fellowship of His Son, Jesus Christ our Lord. Notice, Jesus is the Son of God. Now the ancient Jews understood what that meant and why it was such a difficult thing for them to grasp and accept. There were times where to be Son of God was figuratively used in Scripture, to speak of kings, for example. But to say that someone is someone else's son is to say that you share his nature. I share the nature of my parents because they're my father and mother. They, they passed their nature on to me. So to say that you are the son of Yahweh in that sense means that you share his nature. And to share Yahweh's nature because Yahweh is one, is to be Yahweh. Jesus is the Son of God, and therefore He must be the same God. He has the same nature as the Lord, that means He is the Lord. 
Jesus is our Lord, our teacher and master, and the head of God's household. And notice the passive voice again there in that verse, you were called. So again, it's something that happened to us from the outside. By God's grace, he calls his people into fellowship, into communion with Christ, his son. Thus, as we saw in verse 4, we are in Christ because God picked us up and put us there. By his grace, he takes his people and attaches them to Jesus and puts them in Christ. 2 Corinthians 5.21 speaks of our justification in terms of that status we have in Christ. He made him who knew no sin to be sin for us, that we might become the righteousness of God in him. Because we're in Christ, our sins were laid to his account, and his perfect righteousness is laid to ours. 2 Corinthians 5.17 says, Therefore, if anyone is in Christ, he is a new creation. If you're in Christ, you're someone new. And that newness that comes through that fellowship with Christ is something that is granted by God's grace. This union with Christ, by extension, means there is a union also then with all believers in Christ. If, if you are one with Christ and I am one with Christ in that union, then we must also be one with one another. Ephesians two thirteen and 14 say, But now in Christ Jesus, you who were once far off have been brought near by the blood of Christ. For he himself is our peace who has made both, he's talking particularly there of Jews and Gentiles, has made both one and has broken down the middle wall of separation. John 17.11, in that verse Jesus prays, Holy Father, keep through your name those whom you have given me that they may be one as we are. So because of our union with Christ and this identity with Christ that God gives his people, we also have an identity with one another. The fellowship of God's Son, granted by God's grace to his people, means union with Christ and through him, union with all other disciples in Jesus. Failure to recognize that fellowship and to uh, failure to live it out is a huge problem. And it was a huge problem in the Corinthian church. So Paul emphasizes it here. God's grace grants the fellowship of God's Son. So to recap, the grace of God is given in Christ. Is your trust in Jesus and in Jesus alone for your salvation? That's the only place you can find it. That same grace enriches God's people in word and knowledge. Do you love the gospel? Do you desire to share it with others? Do you find yourself growing in the knowledge of the things of God? Do you want to? Those are all signs of God's grace at work within you. The grace of God confirms the gospel through gifts and hope. What gifts might you have? I pray our study of this letter might help us identify some. Do you have an eager expectation of the return of Christ? Do you long for that? Are you like the Apostle John at the end of the book of Revelation who sees all these things and knows that Jesus is coming and he says, even so, come, Lord Jesus. God's grace grants perseverance to his people because Christ is coming back in his own good timing. Uh, We don't know when that is. We have to persevere to the end. Do you find your faith growing and surviving trials? God's grace will grant you perseverance. 
God's grace sanctifies his people. Do you find yourself forsaking sins and growing in righteousness over time, loving God more, loving his people, loving your neighbor as yourself? Those are signs that God's grace is at work within you. Finally, God's grace grants the fellowship of his son. Recognize your union with Christ and through him with his people. Do you live that out? All of these things are the work of the grace of God. Let's pray. God, grant us your grace all the more that having been saved in Christ, we might be enriched in utterance and knowledge, confirmed in the gospel with gifts and hope, persevere in faith, and grow in sanctification through the fellowship that we have with Christ and through him with one another. For we pray in Jesus' name. Amen.